Welcome to Hardware Addicts, a proud member of the Destination Linux Network. Hardware Addicts is the podcast that focuses on the physical components that power our technology world. In this episode, we're going to discuss the latest AMD mobile processors that will have you grabbing a bib to keep the drool under control. We've got the Zephyrus G14. We'll discuss bass and boost speeds in the brain filler. And of course, we're going to have Camera Corner with Wendy, where we discuss stabilization hardware for cameras. So sit back, relax, and plug in, because Hardware Addicts starts now. I'm Ryan, your tech guide through the universe, and with me today are my two co-hosts, Wendy, our resident photographer extraordinaire and hardware enthusiast along with Michael, the software sage and hardware Padawan. So let's find out what tech adventures everyone has had this week. Michael, what hardware quests have you been on? I'm a software guy, so nothing. What? Wow. Wait. I mean, huh? I mean, basically, all I did was mess around with software stuff because there's not much. I mean, I just... No teleprompter uh, updates? I mean, I could give you updates to the stuff I already had, but... No, you're I was like, just kidding. We don't care. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, that's it's... Uh, yeah, sure. <laughs> All right, fine. We'll move on to Wendy then. Wendy, how did you feed your addiction this week? I got my very first gaming mouse. And okay, so I have to say that I did not understand what the hype was really. I mean, even after we covered it, I was like, yeah, you know, they're cool. But my mouse was dying and I really needed a new one. I ended up with a G205 Hero. So it is a corded mouse. And thanks to Ryan's recommendations, I bought a mouse pad to go with it when I ordered it. I love this thing. Oh my gosh. I cannot believe I went so long without one. It's like getting your first mechanical keyboard. You just can't go back. I'm hooked. My husband (laughs) loves it too. Some of the games he's been playing, he's like, oh my gosh, this is so much easier. I can feel the geek enthusiasm just exuding from you, and I love it. So what are the big difference between, (laughs) well, what mouse did you have before this? So the one I was using before was a Logitech um, ball mouse. So it had the thumb ball that you moved things across the screen with. Yeah, trackballs. Yeah, trackball mouse. So that's what I was using before this one. And I was kind of worried. One of the reasons why it took me so long is... I don't want to run Windows. I don't want a Windows partition to set up a mouse. So I got the mechanical keyboard I did because I could change the RGB on it without needing any software. And thanks to software, this is Michael's area, thanks to software called Piper, I was able to get rid of the rainbow vomit that comes with it. Nice. Yes. (laughs) Rainbow vomit is what you're calling (laughs) RGB now? I love it. Well, when it comes like out of the box and it's flashing all these different colors, yeah, that's rainbow vomit. <laughs> I love it. That's that's a fantastic description. So you got the, is this a Logitech G13 you said or 14? No, G502. G502. Oh, nice. Yes. That's a I very nice hero. I cranked it all the way up to the 16,000 DPI for like two seconds. And, and what was that was, like? That was like, holy crap, where did the mouse go? <laughs> <laughs> And then it was really hard to get it changed back because every teeny tiny move sent it everywhere. So yeah, right now it's on 3,400. Well, yeah, because this goes up to a ridiculous 16,000 DPI. 
and exactly. has 11 <laughs> buttons and adjustable weights in this thing. I mean, you went like with the bomb.com. Did I just age myself? Type of mouth. <laughs> sure. Sure. Yeah, okay, it's, boomer. It's awesome. I love it. I will never go back to regular mouse. It's gaming mice forever for me. Now, how it's has this helped your productivity in in things? Like, is it just for gaming you're noticing a big difference or is it your overall workflow? Well, in just day-to-day tasks, it seems to be so much smoother in my ability to get across multiple screens. That's what I noticed the most. So yeah, my husband's noticed great things in some of the games that he plays. I did try again to play Doom and I still died, but <laughs> I'll get better. It was a smoother death. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it was a smoother death. Yeah. I made it a little bit further. It's not the mouse. It's me. <laughs> but day-to-day stuff. It is. It's amazing just how much smoother it goes back and forth between the different monitors. And I've got my eye on a 34-inch monitor, so it'll be really awesome. And you're going to notice that you can actually, when you think about the DPI being ridiculous, a lot of that is for very, first of all, I don't know that anybody uses 16,000. If you do, I want to hear from you. Let us know. I'd be curious because it's really hard. But if you have a giant monitor screen or you have a bunch of screens then that starts to come into play where it would be a little more useful. And I'm talking at 16,000, yeah. probably not. But the mm-hmm. higher DPIs, the bigger screens you have, the more real estate to cover and, and get over the faster. Of course, you can do that with the higher DPI, but 16,000 is a little much. That's a lot. Yeah, yeah. That, there's a lot. I use about, I don't even know what the actual setting is because there's my mouse has the DPI switching on the mouse itself. So I don't even know what I'm switching to. Uh, but I use that's like not th- like not that low tiers, but like somewhere in the middle because I do have three monitors. So it allows me to go quickly, but not too quickly, like whatever the 16,000 craziness would be. Uh, but so I, I bump I, I that switched. one and it shoots across two monitors. literally. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah I actually uh, got game, this game out from Ryan. He was kind enough to let me not have to deal with finding out what I needed to get. He just said, hey, this one here. I was like, okay, cool. take this. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so I went from having a regular gateway mouse that you get with a computer that 15 years ago when you bought gateway, it's, it's night and day basically. And, uh, mm-hmm. it was, it's fantastic. But your description about how it feels like how you felt when you got that new mouse and you compared it to getting a mechanical keyboard. I only got a mechanical keyboard six, seven months ago or something like that. And it's exactly the experience I had when I got one. I was like, oh, wow. Now, okay, now I see what I was missing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the same thing with the gaming mouse. It's, it's just crazy. It's like, why do I need any kind of special peripherals? It's just a keyboard. It's just a mouse. No, it's not. Exactly. You don't have to be a gamer to appreciate how smooth and fluid a gaming mouse is. Or how about how cool this is to kind of get the geek uh, blood flowing here. You got a whole microprocessor inside there, a little 32-bit ARM processor inside your mouse that's able to report the position of your mouse at 1,000 hertz, one millisecond. I mean, this is when you really start geeking out on a mouse, you start to realize, hey, that $7 thing I grabbed off the shelf, I was missing out because you just got a whole computer practically inside your little mouse now that's helping you in the performance of in precision of your movement. Well, my husband's already mapped one of the keys inside doom for glory kills. So he doesn't have to take his hand even off the mouse for that. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Ryan, what have you been up to this week? 
So I decided to dabble with a new USB audio interface. Now, I've been using the Scarlett 2i2 since I started my YouTube channel, like, I don't know, four or five years ago now. I just wanted to try something a little bit different that had a couple features I was looking for. One was be to be able to actually see the decibel rate as I'm speaking on a little digital monitor. And the Scarlett, of course, has no digital monitor on it. You can't see the volume or if you're peaking or clipping or anything like that. Now, I have the DBX286S, but it's off to the right, so I can't really see it very well. So I got the PreSonos Studio 2.4, and it has a little digital screen on the front, and I'm able to put that on my desk right underneath my monitor. And as I'm talking right now, I can see the lights light up green. I can see the left and right balance, and I can see if I'm clipping. And it's just been a real joy to use this PreSonos uh, brand. I had not heard of them before, but Noah from the Ask Noah show actually is a huge fan of this brand. And we know how awesome he is with audio and tech. So I couldn't be more pleased. It was literally plug and play. doesn't matter if it's Linux, Windows, Mac, whatever. It works with all of it out of the box. You don't have to have any special drivers or software, anything to use it. And just absolutely nice. geeking out over it myself. That is awesome. Nice. It sounds pretty good too. I mean, you can't really tell the difference, but it sounds good. If you're purchasing hardware, like even the mouse we're talking about, sometimes you may be like, hey, that's just not in my budget right now. But if you start hunting for something used, you can save so much money. And really, they've done a really good job on sites like eBay. It's not perfect, but they've done a much better job recently of making sure the buyer, now the sellers always kind of get juked around, but the buyers are protected. I've had, I've purchased just hundreds and hundreds of pieces of hardware off of eBay. First of all, the amount that I've ever had to send back is less than 1%. And the times I've had to send it back, I've always gotten a refund. But the amount of money I've saved is just incredible. This one wasn't a huge savings, but this is a $109 USB audio interface. I was able to pick it up for 80 bucks. So it's a nice savings off nice. there. So if there's something out there that's outside of your budget, don't shy away from used, especially if there's a protection there for you as a buyer to where if you get something and it's not like the pictures, doesn't look like the pictures, then you can just send it back and get your money back. So consider yeah. getting used equipment as well. And you don't even have to go through eBay. eBay is a great option, but places like uh, B&H Photo and Autorama both offer audio gear for used prices. So if you want to go through a company instead of eBay, those are great options too. Really good point. And Amazon also has their pre-owned section where other people can mm -hmm. sell and definitely recommend you do your research on the sellers, make sure they have a good rating, you know, maybe try to communicate, ask a question, see if they communicate back. Those can be signs that you've got somebody who's going to take care of you if there's a problem, but there's a lot of protection out there as well where you can send these things back and uh, you're going to save a ton of money if you do that. And Autorama is fun to say. It is. Well, and that's where I got my USB interface for a lot cheaper. I can't remember what it was originally, but I got mine for 50 through Autorama. Nice. I don't think I've actually purchased from Autorama. I've seen them come up on things, but I've not purchased from them directly. They're one of the places where I go and look at new hardware, especially for photography and go, I'm going to add it to my cart and then shut the window and walk away before I spend way too much money. I've been doing that a lot this week, but we'll get into that mm -hmm. in the core story. This episode of Hardware Addicts and the entire Destination Linux network is now sponsored by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean offers the simplest, most developer-friendly cloud platform. 
It's optimized to make managing and scaling apps easy with an intuitive API, multiple storage options, integrated firewalls, load balancers, and so much more. You can get all this plus access to their world-class customer support for as low as $5 per month, or you can use their flexible pricing structure for as low as 0.7 cents per hour. As Ryan would say, that's darn near free. DigitalOcean also offers over 2,000 cloud agnostic tutorials to help you stay up to date with the latest open source software, languages, and frameworks. Get started on DigitalOcean for two months free with a $100 credit by going to do.co slash DLN. Again, you can get started on DigitalOcean with that $100 credit by going to do.co slash DLN. And we thank DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode. All right. So now we get into our core story of the week. And I am so excited about this. I get geek chills just thinking about it. So AMD, as we know, has continued to have a plethora of impressive offerings on the desktop. Their CPU lineup has been amazing. They've had a lot of performance wins with their GPU but the laptop market, and we discussed this in prior series, is an area where AMD is yet to bring any real competition to Intel. But AMD is hoping to change that, and they had some exciting announcements that have come up in the last few weeks, specifically their new 4000 series of CPUs and their partnerships with companies like Asus, Dell, and Lenovo that are going to make 2020 an amazing year or have the potential to certainly for AMD in the laptop world. So our first glimpse of the 4000 series comes in the form of a laptop, a laptop we talked about, I think maybe on our first episode of Hardware Addicts. Is that where we covered CES? Maybe? Or yeah, first it, or was the first. it was so. the first. Yeah, first. So we talked about this really cool laptop and we were all kind of geeking out about it that had the customizable LED back cover. Well, this is it. And it comes with the new AMD CPU in it as well. Zephyrus, by the way, if anybody was wondering that name, because I had to look it up, is the personification of the West Wind and the bringer of light spring and early summer breezes. So that's refreshing. Sounds refreshing to me. Yeah, sure. Naturally. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So AMD has a couple of options in this new CPU line. We're kind of going to jump a little bit back and forth between the laptop itself and what AMD has, because both are pretty exciting for me. So the three options, we start off with the H series, which has a 45 watt TDP, eight cores, 16 threads, with the highest being at 3.3 gigahertz base frequency and a 4.4 gigahertz boost. So that's the highest of their H series. So there's multiple versions of that. That would be your fastest one for this mobile CPU line. If we're playing take my money, it's already there. Like just take it. You're, we're not playing take my money, Wendy. You're just jumping in there, giving your money away. We haven't even gone through the I, I know. series. <laughs> I know, but I am like just so excited. You know how I was geek bubbling over the mouse? Well, right now I'm having a hard time staying in my seat because, oh my gosh. I'm I know, so I know. Now you kind of understand the story I'm going to tell about putting this thing in my cart over and over and over again <laughs> this week. Oh, Yeah. So we also have the HS series with a slightly lower base and turbo frequency, but also a lower TDP at only 35 watts. Now, 
The trick to the HS line is apparently it's only certain partners who abide by a certain build process approved by AMD that can get a hold of the HS line. So it's not going to be a general availability where any manufacturer can go grab it. Now, one of those manufacturers happens to be Asus, and that's the CPU that's going into the Zephyrus G14, which will come with the Ryzen 9 4900HS, 8-core, 16-thread, 3 gigahertz with a 4.3 gigahertz boost. Yum. I mean, that's all I can say about that. It's incredible. I'm just giddy. I am so giddy. I have been wanting to have a really high-quality AMD processor in a laptop, and we're finally getting to the point where that wish can come true. I agree. I get this question constantly throughout the week. What is the best AMD laptop out there? Now, I've done a video on the Lenovo IdeaPad Flex, which I absolutely love. It's one of my favorite AMD laptops to this point. But I mean, come on, when you look at these specs on this machine, it really makes me look at my computer and say, you're old, you must go and I must buy something new. <laughs> and this thing looks awesome too. Like, I mean, obviously the specs are, sound great. And, uh, but you know, I'm, I'm a designer type. So I like to look at the way that the devices look and the Zephyr, the Zephyrus, that looks like an, an awesome thing, especially with the little LED thing on the back. Ridiculous. The thing that I like most about it at this point is that they've packed such a powerful CPU in a case that's still easy to move around with. One of my biggest issues with a lot of the powerful laptops, and part of the reason I don't have one right now, is because they're massively thick, they're super heavy, they're not portable at all. And I don't want to have something that I can't get actual work done on. That's a really good point. And Linus did a video on this because, of course, his channel gets one of these Asus Zephyrus G14s before us, which is completely unfair. Despite his millions of subscribers, we should have got it first. But in his video, he does a comparison against the much thicker and bulkier desktop replacement laptops like these insane, ludicrous Helios 700s with the Intel flagship mobile processor, the i9. 9980HK, and the Zephyrus outperformed it in many of the benchmarks, but even he was shocked that it actually was on performance par for par on the single core marks. And that is something we generally do not see with AMD. Intel's always kind of got that single core advantage that they've always had. And I think the most surprising part about that is you're talking about an Intel chip with a five gigahertz boost in it, and you're running benchmarks which, you know, the boost is going to come into play at certain points. That's pretty amazing that AMD is keeping neck to neck with that and utilizing less wattage at the same time. Amazing. Well, and one of the things he noted was the maximum battery life for these. So it wasn't just that, yay, you're having more power and it's cooler, but you can use this laptop for what, I think you said 10 hours with light work? Yeah, that is just insane when you think about the kind of performance you're packing in a desktop replacement level laptop and you're getting 10 to 11 hours of standard usage on it. Now, I've been one of those. I've purchased the fancy gaming Alienware laptop with all of the, what did you call it? Puke lights, throw up lights, rainbow (laughs) rainbow vomit. Rainbow vomit, that's it. With all the rainbow vomit on it and everything else. And, you know, they, they're so heavy, you barely can use them as a laptop. You pretty much always keep them on your desk. They get super hot. You know, they're bulky. They're just, they're a laptop, but not really. 
this is a, in the battery life, I mean, come on, you're lucky to get three to four hours out of it. The fact that you're getting an ultra portable level laptop battery with this is quite insane because of what they've been able to do with the TDP in this particular lineup. See, shut up and take my money. There you go. I think I'm going to be saying the same thing. So there's also the third version of the 4000 series known as the U series. And this one is where it's all about the performance and low TDP performance of the battery life for a laptop. I see this going into ultra portable laptops all around. This is going to be a big win for a lot of manufacturers here, especially when I get through the specs. So you get a Ryzen 7 4800U, eight core, 16 thread with a 1.8 gigahertz base, 4.2 gigahertz boost, but get this, 15 watt TDP, 15 watts. I mean, this is something where I don't even know what to expect the battery life you would get out of something like that, but certainly 15, 20 hours. That is something that you could make those, I mean, completely ultra slim laptops that are perfect for putting in a backpack and taking notes on in class and being able to get through your full day of classes and homework without having to plug in. That actually like beats the battery life of a Chromebook. It could (laughs) potentially. I can't wait to see numbers. It's going to make the MacBook Air look like, I don't know, an obese laptop. This is just no way you're not, if the manufacturers really take this and execute on it and pair some good hardware, aluminum unibody frame, a really nice screen with this low TDP CPU, they're going to have a hit that's going to make Apple just sweat. Back to our Zephyrus as our current contender, there are some Strange choices Asus made, at least I think they're kind of strange. They chose NVIDIA's RTX 2060 Max-Q. So instead of going with an AMD GPU in here, of course, you got the integrated one on the CPU itself, but they went with an additional CPU and they or GPU and they put NVIDIA's RTX 2060 Max-Q in there. And I think that's an interesting choice and really kind of shows that Perhaps the manufacturers themselves still don't, and maybe rightfully so, have a lot of faith in AMD's GPU lineup. I, mean, I may, can't may wait till they have one with AMD GPU and CPU, because that's really what I want the most. But if you're trying to get maybe the CPU out there, where this is their first real big run of high-end CPUs, that having a big name like NVIDIA as your GPU might help a little bit. Yeah. That's a good point. Brand yeah, recognition. It could be a it could be, be a marketing thing that they're doing it for. And yeah. also I think that there might be a, a argument that the CPUs are where AMD is dominant and the GPU is kind of like, you know, 50-50. Sometimes they're better, sometimes they're not. But overall, I think it's uh it's not necessarily a bad thing. Maybe they wanted to make a Christmas laptop. So they did green and red. There you go, Michael. That's the way to think about it. Way to get That's into the positive. holiday spirit early. <laughs> right? <laughs> So there is a catch to this laptop. It sounds near perfect, the Zephyrus G14. I've had it in my cart multiple times for pre-order, but there's no webcam. It has a really lousy fingerprint reader, and the backlighting on the keyboard reportedly is quite terrible. So the fact that there's no webcam is kind of silly because it's like, what what year are we in? Like, why? Like, I, I, I understand you can do, like, external webcams, right? But... It doesn't seem like there's any particular reason why, because they actually have a bezel at the top where, you know, webcam would fit. So it just seems kind of weird decision. I've actually not always been a huge fan of Asus laptops. I always found their keyboard placement 
um, of their keys to be slightly bizarre. I see weird decisions like this kind of as a general theme. There's always some weird thing they try to reinvent the wheel with. And this is kind of like an Apple move to me. Like I could see Apple totally coming out. We got our new MacBook Air out. And it doesn't come with a webcam, and that's the advantage. That's the big feature. I mean, at least this thing has other things to make it cool. And fingerprint readers, depending on who you are, maybe something you use a lot, maybe something you don't care about, but this one's not very good. But that could probably be fixed with software. The backlighting on the keyboard seems like a weird choice, although people say that typing on it has been fantastic. I think that it it does hit on all the other areas that will matter to people, like 120 hertz refresh rate. And I think a very reasonable price at fourteen forty nine. Uh, there are multiple versions of this, even at lower prices than that. But that's a pretty powerful version of this Zephyrus at fourteen forty nine. And based on other laptops in this range, I think that's a pretty reasonable price point. Yeah, I've been looking at high end laptops just because it would be so nice to have something portable that can do everything that I need it to do. And as I get to looking at them, I'm like, holy crap, you can get into these massive $2,000 for a laptop. And then I'm like, mm, nope, if I'm spending that much money, I'm completely rebuilding my desktop. I figured you would say if I'm spending that much money, I'm replacing all my camera equipment, but desktop works too. Uh, I could do both. Just <laughs> give me all the money and I'll do both. There you go. <laughs> So if AMD made Intel soil themselves on the Ryzen 3rd gen offerings, you know Intel has to be straight up wearing diapers at this point after hearing this announcement. But Intel's not out of the fight. I love me some Intel. And Intel has their 10th gen mobile CPUs that they've announced. Unfortunately, they're still using the tired 14 nanometers. Uh, we're going to cover that next week. We'll kind of get into some of the specs and things and look at the 10th gen Comet Lake H. Even though it's still based on that older manufacturing process, they have done amazing things over the years with that process. They've been able to pull a lot of performance out of it. So they'll probably be able to, if, if it was neck and neck with their current flagship, the i9-9980HK, this one's probably going to come in and give the Ryzen a run for its money. I just don't know if they'll be able to get that TDP where it needs to be. Yeah, and I, I think they might be able to match performance, but man, how do you match that battery life? Exactly. So it sounds like you're both very interested in this laptop from Asus, right? I don't know. Could, how could you tell? Right? Well, it, it, it sounds like maybe Asus has hit your wallet <laughs> with a lightning bolt. Asus. Zeus, get joke. Yeah, yep. Oh my gosh. I'll no. be here all week. Wow. We banned the dad jokes. We told you no dad jokes when we started today. Come we on. Didn't say, we didn't say no dad jokes. You said not 15 dad jokes. So oh. I'm just limiting it down to maybe seven. Well, good job on that. That was a little bit of a stretchy one. <laughs> it was a stretch. We're going to allow I, it. We're I went for it. it. Well, the Christmas joke was there and there too. So I'm, 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 I, there's hit and miss. It happens. She yeah. won't want yeah. me. <laughs> Dang, that's the ultimate insult. <laughs> so let's get into our brain filler. We're going to talk about the base versus boost clock, which you've seen a lot of that as we were talking about the specs of the various CPUs. And it got me thinking, how many people really know what that means? I don't. Well, the most important part of this discussion is really bragging rights. Because, listen, if your base clock is only 3 gigahertz, which is a measurement of how many billions of calculations it can perform in a second, and your Same. friend has a base of 3.8 gigahertz, 
Well, then you're clearly the noob and should hide in shame because you have a slower CPU. And that's important to be able to make fun of people who don't have fast base clock as you. All right, cool. Thanks for explaining it. Uh, thanks for coming to listen to the show, everybody. <laughs> now you understand. Well, there's maybe a little more to it than that. So, you know, back in the day, we only had base clocks. It was pretty easy to compare speeds between processors. You then only had to consider things like cache and architecture and those things to determine what was a really good purchase or buy. But today you have this base and boost and not just on CPUs. But the easiest way to, to define it is the base clock is essentially the speed the CPU is expected to operate under completely normal usage at the defined TDP. It's like your law-abiding citizen driving their cars at the posted speed limit, getting the gas mileage the manufacturer said they were going to get. That's your base clock. Now, your boost clock is turbo mode. That moment when you're feeling a little bit rebellious, you punch the pedal to the floor, as you're going across the intersection, the cores in use peak to their max potential to get the job done. The issue, though, you don't want to focus solely on boost because it can only be maintained under circumstances in which the temperature and cooling stay within the thresholds of the processor. So while the numbers look really impressive, like 5 gigahertz or 4.8 gigahertz, if you have a sloppy cooling solutions, which Generally in laptops, that's one of the ways they can cut some money back, right? They don't put the proper air ventilation in or they put it in a stupid spot or the piping that like they use. facing your lap. Exactly, like facing your <laughs> lap. You know, this is something that you really have to consider in there. So Boost is not generally in laptops. You're, in fact, a lot of them are underclocked because of this. You're not going to necessarily hit those peak performances for long periods of time. It's not that they can't. If they have proper cooling, they can. But it's very hard as we kind of, as consumers, push for thinner, thinner, thinner. And they're trying to figure out how to also cool all of these things inside at the same time. Finally, not all cores boost. And not all cores can boost at the advertised speeds. There are certain yield deviations. That means you get a great CPU that doesn't quite hit the advertised boost speed. And so it's kind of the luck of the yield draw, whether you've got the one that hits 5 gigahertz is advertised or you get the one that has 4.9 or 4.8 or 4.7 because there is a level in there that they are not guaranteeing that even though they advertise the fastest one they have is five gigahertz that you're going to get that silicone that's quality enough to actually be able to hit that speed it would be my luck to get the one that was on the lower of the range exactly mine too but the good news is now that we have Boost today, it allows your CPU to overclock itself to get work done, and then you can return to normal op parameters. So it's still cool. It's a really cool stat. Just don't put too much weight into it all the time, especially you have to kind of consider, is this a desktop machine where you're going to be able to control the cooling solutions and make sure it's properly able to dissipate the heat, or is this a situation where you're going to be reliant on a manufacturer of a laptop in which you're not quite certain how they're doing it? Um, actually, there are more factors in the performance between boost and base clock speeds, like manufacturing variances and other things like that. Thank you, Michael, for preempting the YouTube comment we're certainly <laughs> going to get on this. There are so many factors in this. And on this show, we try to give the explanation of things that your average everyday user can understand. But you are correct. Mr. YouTube commenter, that is absolutely right. There are more factors in the base and boost clock than we can account for on the show. You need to know it's all about the base. Mm. No trouble. And you say that I do dad jokes, and that's not okay. Mm. Oh, come on. Mm. I got one. Mm. One out of eight no, episodes no. is not bad. 
And this is not only am I not bothered by this, I respect it and encourage it. Just can't All right, Wendy, out. help these kids out. Help us kids out and tell us what's going on in the camera corner this week. Well, this week we're going to talk about stabilization. And while not everybody needs to stabilize their camera, if you're wanting to play with things like tabletop photography or macro photography, wildlife, even doing video solutions, this is where hardware to stabilize your camera comes into play. And if you're doing images, your base is a tripod. And from tripods, you have two choices. You can go carbon fiber or aluminum. Aluminum, it's a little bit cheaper. But if you're going to be going outdoors a lot with them, it's a lot easier for them to get dinged and dented and bent. So it might be worth it for you to go carbon fiber. And this is also one of the places if you are buying a tripod, and you are putting your camera on it, I don't care whether you've spent $200 or $1,000 on this camera, make sure that you are buying a good one. So really cheap ones that you can buy from your local variety stores that have everything from groceries to clothes, they don't carry a high quality tripod in there. And so they're not very stable. You're risking them falling over and all kinds of things. If you're going to buy one, go for one that is really quality built. You don't have to spend $1,000 on a tripod, but I'm saying you're probably going to be better if you stick within the range between 50 and 100 in buying tripods. They're an area where if you go super cheap, that's exactly what you're getting and you're risking the stability of the actual tripod. I think that's a good point. I always say that I want my tripod to match my Ferrari, so both of them are carbon fiber. Oh, naturally. Naturally. My my Ferrari (laughs) happens to be a Honda and doesn't have any carbon fiber on it, but still, if I had one, I would want it to match. I thought you were going to say... in your dreams? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I thought you were going to say that they both need to be carbon fiber or imaginary. But you can have an imaginary Ferrari and do just great. If you have an imaginary tripod, it's really not going to help you. Yeah, you just drop you just drop your camera on the ground and <laughs> smashed it. Actually, it's funny because you mentioned the hell having the the terrible crummy uh, tripod and then getting a better one. I actually did get a crummy one, but it was a long time ago. And I don't remember where I got it from, but it was definitely some like nor- like nonsense store or whatever. And then when I realized that it's not tall enough for me to use. I had to take it back and go get a real tripod that was actually tall enough. So it was, it's kind of, it's, it's funny because the way you described it was like, Hey, that's exactly what happened to me. I actually purchased really cheap ones as well for a long time. And I had a bad habit of knocking them over too easily. And so I went to find a better one, but the price was kind of like, eh, I don't want to spend that on a tripod. But eventually I was in a antique store and they had one of these old tripods that i don't know it's like made out of lead but really steel it's just so heavy and has just such a precision head on it to be able to move precisely in things and it probably was extremely expensive in its day but that thing has served me really well and i think i picked it up for like 25 30 dollars but it was just a very old one so i don't know what your thoughts are on steel but it seems like the older ones had a little higher quality than the aluminum as well. That is an amazing score. Well, and to have something heavy like that is really awesome if you're outdoors doing landscape 
photography, that kind of thing. As long as you're willing to pack it, then I don't care how heavy it is. But if you're not okay with packing something that heavy, and I have to say that I wish I had been there because I would have bought it and then... <laughs> you can't have it, hands off, unless you want to trade a Zephyrus <laughs> for it. Then we'll talk. No, no, I'm not willing to do that. <laughs> but you do bring up a really great topic, and that is the heads that are on the tripod, because there are multiple versions. So you have the pan head that just goes side to side, or mine has a ball head, so it can move in all sorts of different directions. It can point straight down, and it also has a function where you have your three legs out, but the top of the tripod can go so you can get top-down images and have it fully stable. And as someone who's done product work and food work, being able to do top down from a really stable position, knowing that I can set up everything I want, see what the shot's going to look like through my camera, and have everything not move as I take that picture is amazing. So those are some different options that you can look at when choosing a tripod that works for you. It really depends on what you're doing and how you're going to use that tripod because there's some that have wrapping legs. So if you want to wrap the tripod around things, I would not use a heavy camera with any of those. Make sure you're checking the ratings, but it's an option. So is this something that professional photographers utilize like i've used those wrapping legs the cheap versions of them to do stuff for my youtube channel but is this something professional photographers utilize as well some do and it depends on what you're doing especially if you're taking video for say a youtube channel and you needed this really funky angle and spot it's one way to help you get the camera in those places where you want it to be and there's really no other way to do it nice you also have the option of a monopod, and I would say that that's great if you're not taking images with really long exposures. So they're perfect for out on a hike, being able to stabilize your camera that way. They're really handy for like sports and stuff, so you can move around, set it down real quick, get a few pictures off. They also come in the different options of carbon fiber and aluminum. And they typically come with a pan head, but a lot of the higher range tripods, you can change the head out on them. You can buy different heads for them. So don't be afraid that if you get one, that you have to buy a whole new tripod. If you would like a different style of head, you can just buy a replacement, screw that one on and off you go. Now, is there a brand recognition in the camera community to say, hey, you need a K&F or a Vanguard, or is there particular brands you all utilize? And I was just reading those off of Amazon typing in tripod, so I don't <laughs> actually know any of those brands, but just curious, or is it more you just look at the ratings, make sure it has the right type of head, right type of material it's made out of? Manfrotto is a really big name when it comes to tripods, but they are definitely more on the expensive end. I have a K&F tripod. I've absolutely loved the darn thing. They are on, I don't know, I guess you'd say more mid-range in the quality tripods, and I would highly recommend them. It's been extremely solid for me. So not only can I do overhead shots with it because it has that ability, I can 
reverse the legs and have the camera upside down inside the tripod, which is amazing for when I've shot video with it that way. With feet walking along the road, I was able to get as low and get the angle that I wanted to get. That's wild. I didn't think Yeah, it that. has crazy features like that. Plus, it has a place to hook a sandbag on it. So you can add more weight to your tripod, destabilizing it, depending on how much weight you have on the top of your tripod. I, I highly recommend that brand. It's definitely one that has been worked well for me. So I'm looking at a Manfrotto and I'm a little bit like, really, $293? That's a RAM upgrade for me. I don't think so, Manfrotto. But yeah, and that's again, not, not even their most expensive. Wow. Yeah, they also do like I, I, the Manfrotto is the only one I recognize, and it's the I think it's like the more popular ones for YouTubers and stuff because I've heard that that mentioned by like filmmakers and stuff where they also have like uh, sliders and dollies and things like that from them. Yeah, I mean they make a very high quality product. They're very high quality, but not everybody can dish out three hundred and fifty bucks for a tripod, especially if. That's the budget that you have to spend on your camera. What I'm saying is you don't have to spend that much, but definitely don't go super cheap. When it comes to video, tripods there are pretty much the same, except for you have something called a fluid head on the tripods that are made specifically for video. And they glide really nice in going back and forth in different directions, getting you that smooth shot. So those ones are going to be more expensive than your pan head or your ball head that are made mostly just for images. Now, can you use the same video one? Let's say you spend a lot of money on a nice video one and it has the fluid head. Is that something you still could utilize for a regular camera? Yeah, absolutely. You can use it for your still images. You can use it for video. So if that's something you want, when you're looking at the tripod to buy, that's something to keep in mind. Gimbals are another option when it comes to video, and there's two different types. So there's the motor ones that help stabilize it itself for you. There's all different kinds of varieties from really, really big ones to little handheld ones. I have a smaller version myself that does an amazing job. And since we're talking used, I got that one used. The used market is absolutely fantastic. You can also get manual ones. So they do help you stabilize the camera, but it does take time to learn the technique on how to stabilize the camera. They're a lot cheaper. You can also pick them up used at great prices, but note, that if you get one of those, you have to account for some time to learn the technique and how to use that manual gimbal. I tried this manual gimbal thing with a phone. It was a gimbal made for a phone, and it was the most obnoxious, annoying thing to try to wait and balance it and get it centered. And obviously, I didn't know what I was doing. And you know, I don't read manuals, so I refused. But the (laughs) point is, it was something where I immediately sold it and went and got a motorized version, which pretty much does all the compensation for you, which is so much nicer. Well, for the ones with cameras, you still have to balance them. So you don't, you can't just throw your camera on there and be good to go. And part of that is you got the weight of the lens and that'll be different on whatever camera you're using for phones. It's so much easier. They are a ton lighter, but you will have to, 
balance everything out on your motorized gimbal. But once you figure out how to do that, so I guess there's a learning curve for both, though the learning curve on the manual one is definitely greater. Dollies and sliders give you those super smooth slide in, slide out shots, and even cranes to do a dive in and over. These are a little bit more specialty gear. They are if you have a certain picture in mind of how you want something filmed. A lot of people who do YouTube for tech gear or a lot of other things where they're showing off what they're doing will use things like the dollies and sliders. You can pick up manual ones for super cheap. I've got a slider that's manual, and let me tell you, they are extremely hard to use to get that even panning across. So I'd almost say if you need one on these, skip the manual, save up, get the motorized one. <laughs> that's perfect for Ryan. You skip the manual and just get the motorized <laughs> I think she was talking directly to my soul. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I actually saw a, a YouTube video where this guy was like doing these really interesting, it's nothing to do with like tech stuff, but his, the production quality of the video was so impressive and it had like, uh, it had a dolly shot or a slider shot and it was just randomly switched to the slider shot. And then he did a behind the scenes thing and he just had a camera sitting on a slider that just went back and forth the whole time. And he just randomly picked it at some point to put it in. <laughs> I was like, that's actually pretty genius. I actually purchased yeah. one of these movie making video cages, which, you know, will kind of allow you to stabilize your camera, not perfectly, but enough to do some shots maybe around the camera while you're, well, or the product while you're walking with the camera. And, you know, you couldn't tell by my YouTube channel, but it's actually pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> well, the last video I did when I was taking pictures of my CPU cooler, the first video that I did, which none of you saw except for you few here, Ryan and Michael and the hardware addicts, I did that panning on my tripod and I was able to get it pretty smooth. The one that everybody else gets to see that's on my YouTube channel that one I actually did with my gimbal. The hardest part about that one was holding the button at a steady rate. There was a whole lot of times that it was panning beautifully. I'd get to about the middle of my CPU cooler. I'd hit it too hard and it would just go whoop. <laughs> yeah. Go crap and start all <laughs> over again. So being able to set the speed can be helpful, but know that you have some range in there. You don't have to start at the most expensive, buy used, then save some money, sell what you don't need anymore, and replace it. This is a great market for being able to resell stuff as long as you're taking good care of it. Love it. So what's the difference between a dolly and a slider? The dolly is what the camera is actually sitting on. So your dolly can have wheels or you can have a dolly on rails. They can range from small, like mine, which is 32 to 36 inches without a motor, to massive ones that not only is the camera on the dolly, but the person controlling the camera is on the dolly. Great for those super movie action shots, fast motion. You can do amazing stuff with them in all different types of configurations. You can probably have 10 or 20 and they all be different. 
So, Wendy, if people have more questions on this topic, how can they get a hold of you? They can get a hold of me in two different ways. First, we have Discourse. That is a great place to go chat with everybody. There's a thread inside the photography section that says, what are your hardware questions? Feel free to drop them there. Or if you're not on the Discourse, you can drop your question in Telegram. Just make sure you hashtag it, H-A Camera Corner, so that I can find it. Very nice. Yeah, we'll put that in the show notes too. All right, so that's it. Our eighth episode of Hardware Addicts is a wrap. Thank you so much for listening to the show that brings you your bi-weekly tech fix. If you're not all lit up on tech yet, then be sure to check out all the great content on the Destination Linux network. Head to destinationlinux.network to check out all the amazing podcasts, YouTube partners that are available there. There is just so much content to fill your brains with. Remember, there's no such thing as too much hardware. Learn, build, innovate, and grow. And if you want to boost your knowledge on hardware, be sure to check out the next episode of Hardware Addicts because all your base are belong to us. Wow. <laughs> wow, Michael. That was, that was a stretch, but I think you kind of got it. Well, it's it worse. It. It'll it be in the ending. <laughs> That's all it is. It doesn't have to be perfect. It just has to be there. <laughs> <laughs>